You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. How's it going? Uh, my name is Tomarcus Raglan. So glad to be here with you guys. I'm the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. Um, and yeah, if this is your first time or if you're watching online, we're glad that you are here with us, continuing in our wisdom series. Um, do any of you guys remember having um, childhood heroes growing up, or just people that you admired while you were a child? I remember I did. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite basketball players of all time is Allen Iverson. Uh, if you know me, I'm a big basketball fan. Um, and so Allen Iverson was somebody that I, I, wanted, I wanted to play basketball like him. Uh, matter of fact, when my dad coached my YMCA basketball team when I was in kindergarten, he let me pick the name of the team. And I said, it's got to be the 76ers. And he was like, all right. And I said, and I have to be number three. Um, and of course I was, and I had my headband on like him. I wore the Allen Iverson shoes. I tried to model my crossover like him, right? Like I just, I admired him uh, so deeply. In fact, if you were to ask me what my favorite birthday was growing up, it was kind of an odd question, uh, but without a doubt, it was my 13th birthday. And it wasn't just because um, I got a cell phone for the first time when I turned 13 or that my parents let me throw a party with my friends from uh, church for the first time, although both of those things were true. But it was the, for the first time my parents bought me an Allen Iverson jersey. And it wasn't just like the ordinary jersey. It was like the hardwood classic, like throwback, you know, with the little like stars around it, right? And I, I laid it out on the side of my bed with the, you know, you did this before, right? You laid the outfit out before school. I was ready. Right? I had arrived. Um, and here's, here's what's true about that. Right? As much as I admired uh, Allen Iverson, um, the, the admiration I had for him did not deeply impact uh, who I am as a person. In fact, uh, to this day, right, uh, I talk about playing basketball a lot more than I ever actually get to play. Um, and when I do play, I tend to talk a lot about the times when I was better at basketball uh, than I am now. Because apparently when you stop playing, you don't play as well. Um, but this is what else is true. Uh, if you were to, to see some of the things that have shaped me um, over the past uh, few years, some of what's come out of that is I'm pretty good at preparing dinner every now and then. I used to burn everything, and now I can you know, make it edible. Um, and, and I'm good at fixing and straightening things up around the house and have kind of an eye for home decor, um, growing a taste for HGTV, right? Um, I love uh, New Orleans cuisine, and I've grown to appreciate um, their uh, culture and, and celebrations. Um, and I also, whenever I'm in the store and I'm like walking down a candy aisle, I have the urge to look to see if there's like um, a, a air, uh, what do you call it, a Starburst or Airheads Extremes or Skittles in those little purple and, and blue packages. And some of that sounds very like, uh, you know, peripheral, like what, what's significant about that? Um, but all of those things and many other things that are, you know, deep and, and, and uh, important and even just the, the little uh, technicalities I've learned from being in a relationship with my wife since I was in high school, right? Like she's shaped me. She's shaped the way uh, that I see the world. She's helped me um, learn and grow in so many different ways and even has affected my taste in food um, and candy. And here's what's probably true for you, right, like it is for me. If you think about those relationships that we have with the people that we admired growing up, um, those didn't affect us nearly as deeply as the people that we do life with every single day. Whether it's a spouse, 
um, or a friend or a, a parent or a sibling, right? The people that we do life with day in and day out are the people who shape us, right? It's not the people we admire, but it's the people with whom we abide. And over the past uh, few weeks, um, we've been in this series on wisdom, right? Just to give you a brief recap of where we've gone up until now, um, we have defined wisdom as living in God's world in God's way, right? We've learned that wisdom has a posture, it's low, it has a pace, and it's slow, and it has a person, and his name is Jesus, and we grow wise in relationship with him. And of course, you can't talk about wisdom without uh, looking to the book of Proverbs, which tells us the fundamental truth about wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Wisdom, uh, or fear of the Lord is the staying place, uh, the starting place and the staying place of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is also not being so afraid um, of life that we uh, forget God. It's also not being so afraid of God uh, that we run from him, but rather that we are so taken in by him and his goodness and his grace that we move towards him in all of life. And it is in moving towards him that we actually get to grow wise. And then after all of that, the past two weeks, we got to learn about the foolishness um, that's in us, right? Uh, we got to look at Proverbs and see four types of fool that it calls us uh, to avoid, right? The stubborn, the simple, the sluggard, and the scoffer. And if you're like me, as uh, Jamin preached through all of these uh, various characteristics of the fool, uh, he pulled my card many times, and maybe he did uh, the same for you. And if that's the case, uh, what I'm excited to tell you this morning is that there is grace and mercy and hope for the fool. If you have a Bible, we are going to primarily be uh, in Proverbs 31 this morning. And probably of all the chapters of Proverbs, uh, while it's the most popular um, and probably most well-remembered, it is also likely the most misunderstood. Right? Like if you've been around Christian culture for any amount of time, like you've undoubtedly heard of the Proverbs 31 woman or P31 for short, right? Countless blogs and coffee mugs and women's conferences have carried Proverbs 31 as a banner. And while there are certainly uh, principles that one might glean from it, the scope and the purpose of this chapter within the broader context of Proverbs is so much broader than we may think. Right? Like personally, I grew up in a culture that referred to uh, Christian women as P31s. And while there was some good intention behind all of that, uh, a lot of that shrunk um, my view of this chapter. For example, in the original language, if you look at verses 10 through 31, um, the, the verses form an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, very similar to what you'd find in Psalm 119. I like this is a, a poem. It's a song of praise, and the form itself was meant to be uh, rem for the contents to be remembered, but also uh, it gives this, it, this idea of completeness of the whole book. Right? In other words, uh, all that you have learned and read in Proverbs culminates itself uh, in this uh, chapter with these few lines of verse to be remembered. Right? And there's more happening here with the P31 woman or the excellent wife, right? as verse 10 puts it, that meets the eye. In fact, the book of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, if you read there, Boaz praises Ruth for being a um, noble woman. Right? That word, noble woman and excellent wife, they're the same in Hebrew. And she was neither married, nor did she have children, nor was she wealthy at the time that he um, praised her in that way. She was a widow, she was without children, and she was poor. 
but Ruth had the fear of the Lord. And so he praised her for it. Proverbs 31 is an allegory then, right? It's not meant to be um, a burdensome checklist um, on the backs of women, but a picture for both men and women to behold something beautiful about wisdom and ultimately about our God. In Proverbs, at first glance, it may seem as though um, God is inactive in much of the book, right? Like if we look at some of the other uh, books in the Old Testament, we see God um, doing things and moving in people. And here we we see more, uh, right, proverbial sayings. Um, But God is mentioned uh, more than 80 times in the book of Proverbs. And this is significant because a distinct characteristic of wisdom literature for the people of Israel that separated it from uh, the wisdom of the world around them was that wisdom didn't derive from us, but it derived from God. And wise living was inextricably tethered to having a relationship with God. Right? The wisdom that is common to man will get you most of the way, but without God, we will always fall short. And this is the mystery of wisdom that Proverbs 31 wants to reveal to us, right? Here's where we're going today in light of that in a sentence. A proper fear of the Lord leads to abiding with the Lord. And abiding with the Lord makes us wise. A proper fear of the Lord leads to abiding with the Lord. And it is abiding with the Lord that makes us wise. If wisdom is just this uh, idea or a concept, right, at best, we can admire it. Right? But like our childhood heroes, that bears no weight on our hearts or our souls and our very person. But if wisdom is not just an, an idea or a concept, right? if wisdom isn't just a list of maxims, but rather a person, someone that can be known, right? we can be in relationship with it, then that changes the whole story. So here's what I want to invite us into this morning. If we understand Proverbs 31 to be this culmination of the book of Proverbs and that the central um, message and idea that it's trying to portray is that the fear of the Lord leads, um, leads us to abiding with the Lord, then rather than uh, putting ourselves in the place of the excellent wife, may we consider this poem from the perspective of the husband. Ladies, if that's uh, strange for you, uh, we can be reminded that even the men in the room are called the bride of Christ, right? The Bible likes to use these um, different pictures to, to paint truths for us. And so as we look at this, right, remember that it's an allegory, right? It's poetic. And what this poem wants to reveal to us is that wisdom is not like our childhood heroes. We don't grow wise by admiring it from afar right, and and emulating it in some ways, but rather like a marital covenant, we grow wise by abiding with a person. So this morning, I want to highlight three movements from the chapter in a form of three questions. First, uh, what prompted the poem? Second, what picture does the poem paint? And third, where does the poem point? So, right, what, what prompted the poem? What picture does it paint? Where does it point? First, what prompted it? Look at verses 1 through 5. It says, The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him, What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Least they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. A couple observations here. First, 
Notice the characters. It's a mother and her son, Lemuel, who is a king. Some scholars believe that Bathsheba, this is Bathsheba speaking to Solomon and that Lemuel was um, a kind of nickname, right? It means devoted or um, belonging to God. And this was a way that she uh, referred to him as his son, right? It's kind of cute. Lemuel, all right? But either way, right, this is a a mother speaking um, to her son. Second, the nature of their conversation. This isn't a, a letter or a birthday card. Right? Like it has a different tone. Right? It says this is an oracle from his mother. There is a prophetic nature to the mother's instructions to her son. And we can see this evidence in her tone, right, that there is an um, admonishment that she is given to call him away from something that is going to bring him danger and destruction and to urge him towards something different. So she says, don't give your strength to women and your ways to those who destroys kings. What does she mean by that? What kind of woman destroys kings? Well, we've met her several times as we've looked at various passages in Proverbs. The woman he's allu- she's alluding to is Lady Folly. Folly doesn't just lead you to make bad decisions. It destroys your life. If you give your ways to the way of folly, the end is destruction. And when the foolish enter her house, right, they don't, they don't find correction for their foolishness, but rather they find agreement and they find cheering and, right, uh, and they're not admonished. And so what happens is it feels good for a moment, but what they don't realize is that it's just slowly breeding death within them. Right? All four types of fool, the stubborn, the simple, the sluggard, the scoffer, have one thing in common. Right? Their foolishness looks different, but they share one thing in common. And that's all of them respond poorly to correction. None of them receive correction. The stubborn ignores it. The simple avoids it. The sluggard excuses it. And the scoffer just flat out hates it. Right? Can't hear it. And so if you're like me, and over the past few weeks, as Jamin right, introduced us to these types, and you, know, you heard one, and you're like, ooh, I feel like some of that's in me. Right? You like, hear the next one, and you're like, ah, that one too. I think I might be good on the ne- Nope, that one too. All right. So I got, we got some foolishness here we got we to gotta work through. Um, there's hope, right? One of the central things that Proverbs wants to show us is that being foolish doesn't have to disqualify us from being wise because wisdom calls out to the fool. Remember last week we read Proverbs 1.22. How long, simple ones, will you love being simple? How long scoffer, will the scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? But look at verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Do you feel that? Being foolish doesn't have to be final for us if we respond to the rebuke. It's apathy to the rebuke that hardens the foolishness in us. But the heart that is responsive to the rebuke, the heart that leaves the house of folly behind and chases after wisdom doesn't have to remain a fool. And this is what Lemuel's mother is calling him out of and urging him towards. Look at verses 8 through 9. She says, open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all the destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously, defend the rights of the needy and the poor. This is a lofty charge. She's saying, son, I don't don't want you to give your strength in your life to women that are gonna ruin you and ruin your reign and gonna lead you down the path of destruction. 
Instead, I want you to rule with justice and champion the needs of the lowly and to defend the destitute among you, the needy and the poor. So I don't want you to be a foolish king. I want you to be a wise king. That's what she wanted for her son. She wanted him to be wise. That's what I want for my children. That's what I want for myself. That's what you want for yourselves. Right? We see the foolishness in our lives, but none of us wants it. Right? We want to be wise. And so we ask how. Not imagine that Lemuel... Right, or Solomon felt the same way. Can you see the king sitting with his mom, hearing her words, maybe feeling broken and just wondering, like, how do I, how do I get out of this? Like, mom, what do, I, what do I have to do? How do I change? And she says, well, if you're going to rule the way that I've urged you to, you're going to need the Lord's wisdom to do so. Remember Proverbs 8, 14 through 16. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight I have strength by me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule. If you want to rule like that, you're going to need the Lord's wisdom. Okay, how do I learn the Lord's wisdom? She doesn't say, well, you got to shape up, start making some better decisions, carrying your weight, right? She doesn't hand him a book of like seven steps to your wise life now, or like give him another list of maxims, right? Like that's not how she responds. Instead, she reads him this poem, right? She says, you want to be a wise king? Well, you need the Lord's wisdom. And the Lord's wisdom works a lot like being married to an excellent wife. And in this picture, we see um, that laid out. This is what prompted the poem, right? So what does the poem paint? Well, the poem paints a picture of an incredible woman and ultimately an incredible marriage. And there are depths and depths of things that are filled in this uh, poem. But for our sake of time, we're going to look at two questions to work our way through. Who is the woman and who is the husband? We want to spend a lot of time on the husband. Verse 10 says, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. All right, good students of the book of Proverbs, right? If you hear that language, it automatically like harkens your brain back to so many other passages about jewelry within the book of Proverbs. And every time you see jewels pop up nine times out of 10, it's referring to lady wisdom. Lady wisdom is always uh, being compared to jewels and gold and silver. And every time it says that she is far better than all of those things. In chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, it says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire could compare to her. Again, in Proverbs 18 through 11, it says, Take my instructions instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom It's better than jewels, and all that you can desire cannot compare with her. The excellent wife of the poem is Lady Wisdom. She is the perfect helper. She is the one back in chapter 9 who built her house with seven pillars, exemplifying perfection, and prepared this lavish meal with good wine and sent out servants to invite all who had lost their way and were filled with foolishness to come and to dine with her. And here we get to see a glimpse of what it's like to live in the home and to abide with such a person. We have a front row seat, Lady Wisdom dwelling uh, with her husband. 
So if that's the, the woman of the poem, if it's lady wisdom, if this is what uh, the mother is trying to portray, who is the husband? Right, if we're looking at this from the perspective of the husband, if, if what his mom was trying to communicate to him was uh, this relationship that he needs to have with wisdom, how are we to respond? We see three things about the husband. It's easy to miss because he's only mentioned a few times, but in these three spaces, uh, we learn a lot of what we need to know um, about him. The first time we see him is in verse 11 through 12, and we learn that his heart trusts her. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of his life. He trusts her because she's trustworthy. And in his life, he is never put to shame for having chosen her. She does him good all the days of his life and not harm. She's not like the, the woman who will lead him down destruction and destroy his reign. She does good to him. And we see this evidence in all of the ensuing verses, right? He, he never lacks gain. She's a hard worker. She manages her home diligently. She stays up and her lamp never goes out and she wakes up and before it's day while it's still night, uh, and she gets her food from afar, right? She looks at her field and she creates a vineyard and she sews clothes and clothes her family, right? They are taken care of and he has all of his needs amply supplied. He trusts her. The second thing we see listed about the husband, verse 23, his character is respected because of her. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. This pastor, we see that his wisdom is made evidence because of the wisdom of his wife. Right? The idea is that a man who has married a woman like this has demonstrated his wisdom in choosing her, right? And as he sits among all the, the, the people at the gates, they are able to see um, his wisdom and he is praised and respected because of her. Right? She becomes his boast at the gates. And the third thing we see about him is his mouth praises her. In verses 28 and 29, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. He praises her because she's praiseworthy. And we see why she's worthy of praise in the following verses, right? Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is worthy to be praised. See, what, what pointed him to praise, right, was not all of the stuff and the things, right, but because she had the fear of the Lord, just like Ruth, right, the fear of the Lord was, was honored and worthy to be praised. And so he and his children alike praise her. And what they knew is that the, the fear of the Lord for him and for her was the most important thing at the end of the day and that nothing else mattered. So who's the husband here? We've seen what he's like who is he? The husband is the one who answered Lady Wisdom's call. He didn't just enter the house of folly and stay there. Maybe he was there, but he didn't decide to, to make his home there. He leaves and he goes after Lady Wisdom and he receives her invitation to come inside. He doesn't just admire her from afar and, and just kind of look at her house, but he enters the house. And he doesn't just sit down for a meal and enjoy the company and leave, but he makes her his wife and he abides with wisdom. The picture that we see here isn't of just a, 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 a moment with wisdom, but this is a life lived with wisdom. 
They have children. They have a vineyard. They have possessions. They have renown within the town. This is a, a life that is looking back on all the days that they have spent walking with Lady Wisdom. And what he found at the end of that was there was never a day where I was put to shame for having chosen her. But remember, this is an allegory. Right? It is a, a poem. And if we try to read this like a to-do list, do you see how that can rob it from its beauty? It becomes an unbearable yoke. And I just want to say for a second, right, especially for the women in the room, this is not a litmus test to measure how godly of a woman you are, but this is about the goodness and the beauty of God that we all serve. This poem teaches us that wisdom is less like a ritual and more like a relationship. It's less about what you do and more about what has been done on your behalf. None of us can conjure up wisdom on our own. Wisdom doesn't derive from us. Wisdom belongs to God. God gives wisdom. And what we see allegorized here in Lady Wisdom, we find truly manifested in the incarnate word, the person of Jesus Christ. This is the picture that the poem paints. This is where it points to Christ. Christ is the one. It is Christ who does us good and not harm all the days of our life. He says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come so that you might have life and life more abundantly. It is Christ who brings food for his household from afar. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who brought bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread. I am the bread of life. Anyone who receives me will never hunger again, and whoever believes in me will no longer thirst. It's Christ's lamp who never goes out. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. It's Christ who dresses his household in fine linen. He says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. She has been clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen she wears is the righteous acts of the saints. It is Christ who's worthy to be praised. It says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne room, living creatures and elders, and the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ is the one. This is who the poem is pointing us towards. And if we're the husband of the poem and Christ is the one in whom it is painting, Christ is the one in whom our hearts are to trust. It is through Christ that we are counted wise and among the wise. And Christ is the one who we praise because not only did he demonstrate perfectly what it looks like to fear the Lord, he is the Lord. And no one who puts their trust in him will ever be put to shame. I was talking with Mike, Mike Eam, who's going to be bringing the word for us next week um, about this and preparing. And he said a lot of brilliant things because he's brilliant. If you know Mike, you know that about him. Uh, but one of the things as we were wrapping up, he kind of said it as an aside, and it struck me. He said, you know, when you, when you think about it, this, this whole poem really has more of an eschatological nature than anything else. That's just a big fancy word for, like, it's, it's looking at the end. 
Right? Like I said earlier, this is, this is a, a person looking back over a lifetime walking with wisdom. And in many ways, this is a, a picture for us to be able to look back over a lifetime of walking with Christ, knowing that right, if we choose him, we won't be put to shame. I think this is the reason why the church is called the bride of Christ and scripture is filled with so many images of matrimony to remind us of this union and relationship that we have with him. And it's no coincidence that the, the story closes with this uh, beautiful wedding scene reminding us of what awaits us. Revelations 21, 1 through 5, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away And he said, the one seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He said, write down these words for they're trustworthy and true. All of history is moving towards a day when God will dwell with his people and his people will dwell with him. And here, right, the wise dwell with him now. Brothers and sisters, we can try to be all of the things described in Proverbs 31 and maybe even excel at some of them. But if we miss Jesus in the process, if we miss that the answer to our foolishness is not more law, but more grace, we will live. We will have lived foolish lives. This isn't a chapter, an issue reserved for women. This is a church issue. I love what Ina Caruth said. Uh, She taught this during our women's Bible class. She said, my prayer for us is not that we would be Proverbs 31 women or that they would be Proverbs 31 men, but that we would collectively be a Proverbs 31 church. Her prayer is my prayer. It's one of our values here at Citizens Church, right? Life in Christ. If you look at our website, right, we we spell it out, right? It's, It's Citizens Church, right? We believe that the gospel not only saves us, but it changes us and it empowers us to live under the grace and rule of Jesus, our King. All of life then is lived in Christ. Do you want to know the answer to our foolishness? It's wisdom. But wisdom has a posture. It's low. It has a pace that is slow. And most importantly, it is a person. And the answer to our foolishness is a humble lifelong abiding relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And despite all of our foolishness, he has invited us to leave the checklist and the law behind and to abide with him and to accept his atonement. For many of us, this may feel like too easy of an answer as we consider the past few weeks, right? Like we, we, we've seen our foolishness and what we want is we want to fix it, right? We want to manage it. We want to figure it out, plot a plan, annihilate it, right? We got to take care of it. But Christ's invitation, right, is that you would stop managing, that you would stop trying to fix it, and that you would allow him to do the work in and through you. His invitation sounds really different from what we expect, but it sounds a lot like 
that of wisdom. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what we've been invited to with our Savior. A lifetime with Jesus Christ will change you because abiding with the Lord is wise and it makes you wise. In a moment, we're about to enter into a time of worship. Right? And the last thing that we learned about the, the husband in the passage is that he praises the wife for what she's done. Right? And if we want a practical step of what can we do right now, what can we do right now to take a step towards abiding with wisdom. As we sing and worship our Savior for all that we've done, we can sing aloud with a heart of thanksgiving and praising him because he's better than anything else we could desire. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so grateful that you extend grace and mercy to foolish people. Lord God, that our the foolishness in me isn't, doesn't have to be final. It doesn't get the last word. But because of my abiding with you, because of our abiding with you, oh God, not only are you uh, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, not only did you pay the penalty for our sins, but in the grand scheme of life, you are working in and through us day by day, making us more um, into your image. Oh God, while we may not have the power to fix what's most broken within us, Lord, you do. Oh God, you've accomplished it. For everyone who has put their trust in you, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's atonement, there's hope. Lord, I just pray that um, today, Lord, that we would just begin even more so to press in and to trust in what you have done on our behalf rather than focusing on what we can do for ourselves. Lord God, we need to trust in you. And trust that in being in relationship with you, we will be made wise and we'll never be put to shame. Father, we love you. It is in your son Jesus Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.